Welcome to On Script's Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study slash biblical world. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. This is part two of our Top 10 Archaeological Discoveries of 2023 series. So we hope you enjoy that. If you haven't listened to the first part, you can go back and find that. It's a fascinating discussion and we are uh, pleased to bring you this second part. If you haven't done so, could you give us a rating, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen? That would be really helpful in getting this podcast out there uh, in this new year. So thanks so much for listening and enjoy the episode. Welcome back, Biblical World listeners. This is episode two, or the second part of our top 10 list. I am joined again by my partner in crime, Dr. Kyle Keimer. Kyle, how you doing? Hello. I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Doing really well. I know a lot of people have been posting their top 10 lists, so I thought we should post ours, our first top 10 list here on the Biblical World podcast. Last episode, we looked at the Bronze Age top three stories that we thought were the best discoveries of the last of the last year, 2023. This episode, we're moving into the period of periods, uh, the most significant period in the history of the land of the Bible. Of course, I'm talking about the Iron Age. Of course, I say that a bit tongue-in-cheek. I like all the periods, but we all have our favorites. Uh, we're looking at the Iron Age discoveries, and as I mentioned last time, even though this is a top 10 list, we're not progressively moving towards the top find, uh, although I, I will say which is my favorite finds as we as we move through them, uh, but we're doing it chronologically. So these are, I think, four stories, four top discoveries over the last year, um, but we're not just talking about the top 10 discoveries, we're also talking about some of the top stories. And there's no bigger story in the last couple of weeks uh, than what was, I think, probably a top 10 in 2022, uh, or may, actually maybe earlier this year, that is the so-called curse tablet from Mount Ebal. There's been a lot of, a lot of stuff drop in the last few weeks. In fact, uh, we had a roundtable discussion about the so-called Ebal curse tablet, I think it was last year when news first dropped. And so we thought that this would be a good opportunity to come back and talk about it. We've kind of been avoiding it until now, um, just because there's been a lot written on it. One important note is that the tablet was actually published in a peer-reviewed journal called Heritage Science. It's The name of the article is You Are Cursed by the God Yahweh, or uh, yud Hey vav an early Hebrew inscription from Mount Ebal, uh, led by Scott Stripling, Gershom Galil, and uh, Peter Vanderveen, as well as some some other scholars, Ivanka Kumpova, Yaroslav Valak, and Daniel Vavrik. Uh, just to give some quick background for those of you who don't know, Mount Ebal is the mountain of the curse, or so-called curse. It's famous in connection with the Book of Joshua as the place that the Israelites, uh, six of the tribes, went up to uh, read the cursings 
those other six tribes were on Mount Gerizim to read the blessings. And this enacted the covenant in the land, which happens at the end of Joshua chapter eight. And then after this, towards the end of that chapter, we read that the uh, that Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal, covered it with plaster, and wrote the words of the covenant on it. Back in the 1970s, Adam Zertal excavated a structure that had lots of bones uh, that seemed to have been burnt in it and found um, all of the pottery seemed to date to the Iron Age One, which is about 1200 to 1000 BC. He found two phases of this, of this structure and suggested because it was on the mountain, the site of Mount Ebal, that this was the altar that's mentioned in the Bible. Uh, Joshua chapter 8, and probably referenced to in, in Deuteronomy as well. Uh, a couple years ago, during the pandemic, and maybe slightly before, Scott Stripling and his team found out that there was uh, the dump of the site nearby, and they had been using a wet sifting process at the excavations of Tel Shiloh, where Scott Stripling is the director, and they took the material and began this wet sifting process to find different things that Zertal missed. And that's where this very small, very, very small piece of lead uh, was uh, was discovered. <laughs> Just reminded, uh, there's one of my favorite Johnny Cash songs is, uh, I'm trying to remember the name, but the titular part of the song is where a guy accidentally shoots this writer running and he says like, was it all for this? Just one ounce of lead? Uh, and he ends up you know, being hung at the end of it. I kind of feel like we're in that song. The small, little bitty piece of lead uh, has has led, pun intended, to just this enormous controversy connected with uh, what it says on it. So to return back to, to our discussion, we have Scott Stripling and his team, Gershon Galil and Peter Vanderveen, arguing that this actually has writing and the writing is Paleo-Hebrew, dating exactly to the Late Bronze Age or the Iron One. There's differences of opinion among the three, the three there, and in at least the publication, argued for a whole wide range of uh, not only suggestions about what's actually there, but then led to uh, a number of historical conclusions or possibilities that this is the first reference to Yahweh, uh, that this is signs that the writing existed already, uh, depending on which scholar among them you asked, to 1400 BC or to 1200 BC. Uh, I remember Gershon Galil saying something along the lines of, whoever wrote this could have written the entire Torah. Uh, and in any case, regardless of your, your view on it, clearly uh, suggesting some major historical implications. Well, all, the, all of that, of course, happened over the course of this year, but just in the last two weeks or so, maybe three weeks, uh, the Israel Exploration Journal dropped a series of articles uh, that criticized this approach, not only at the level of it being an inscription, but also it being a, a curse tablet, and also criticized the, the entire endeavor of publishing this in the press without publishing it in an academic journal as well. There's a whole host of other issues that we could that we could get into. Maybe I'll just say a couple things before we 
uh, talk about what the Israel Exploration Journal has suggested. Um, but that is that among the core teams, Scott Stripling, Gershon Galil, and Peter Vanderveen, there's a deep disagreement between Gershon Galil on the one hand and Peter Vanderveen and Scott Stripling on the other. Uh, if we just focus on uh, Gershon, this year is, has been one of massive discovery uh, be, <laughs> because every week it seemed, in maybe it was some of in 2022 and a bit into 2023, uh, that there was a new discovery in Hezekiah's tunnel. There's a new discovery on this rock. There's a new discovery on this rock. And scholars looked at the rocks that Gershon Galil said had writing on it, but no one could see anything. And and so this is part of that whole controversy as well, is that Gershon Galil not only was involved with this in this publication, and at least from what we can see from his own co-authors, especially Peter Vanderveen, he seems to have most of his agenda published in the article in Heritage Science. Uh, so one of the things that to be to be perfectly fair to those involved, we need to really see is the next iteration of publication, which apparently will present uh, different parts of the so-called inscription, but also the views of the other two key figures, Scott Stripling and uh, Peter Vanderveen. So a lot to un unpack here. Uh, I think I mostly got uh, the order of events right. I feel like I'm a bit whiplashed. Uh, by this little piece of lead, Kyle, did I did I miss anything or th some things to add there? Um, no, I think the only thing I would add is that you know, in the articles, in the critique articles that just came out in uh, Israel Exploration Journal, um, one of the articles in particular makes a vastly different case for what this object is, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, and again, also. Um, if we look at the article that has been published by this team uh, working, people can look at it and evaluate it for themselves. Do, do you see letters? Um, for instance, I myself, I, I simply don't see letters. Um, so I'm not sure what I might be missing, but I, I think that probably the case that it's a fish, uh, fishing weight basically makes a lot better sense. But again, if there's going to be future publications that bring out new images that show things in a different light, then we can reevaluate when those appear. Yeah, I, I'm more or less in the same camp. I, I think that the bigger issue uh, that I think the Israel Exploration Journal, I think rightly does, is it's, it's a good thing to challenge any discovery that's made, particularly those that have major historical implications, that they have to be vetted through a, a long process of academics, debating them on whether or not it says what you say it is or whether the implications are. I think the bigger issue is that if you're going to make major historical demands, it requires good historical evidence and good historical publications. And so, as I said, hopefully we'll see some of the things that come out in the, in the next iteration of, of the publication. I do also think that the fishing weight idea is not without merit. It has some really interesting parallels. In fact, if you look at some of the pictures, like that really just kind of looks like a fishing weight. On the other hand, it is kind of odd that a fishing weight would be at a place that is as far as you can be from water. <laughs> I mean, you could go to the Jordan or you could go to the Mediterranean. It's basically equidistant and there's not really any place that you would use it there. Um, so, I mean, I, I have the utmost respect in the world for 
uh, Ami Mazar, and I think it's a very clever suggestion. And this is actually one of the things I love about archaeology, and I try to, to use this myself, is you make a suggestion and you say, this is as far as the evidence uh, can take us uh, in, in this regard. But is it a fishing weight? Uh, hard to say with, with certainty. It's a suggestion. And the, you know, the jury's still out on what exactly this will, uh, this will be. But again, I think that the bigger, the bigger lesson is more along the lines of how we approach this type and publish this type of evidence, not only in an academic sphere, but in a public sphere. Like this is actually, I think, very relevant to our audience and very relevant to Kyle and I as public-facing scholars who do a podcast, that we we need to have the approach of, we need to really think through the evidence and be fair with what the evidence, where the evidence leads and not immediately jump to conclusions. And so I would say, in hindsight, the biggest problem with all of this is the way that it was announced in the first place. And you can see, especially in the case of Gershon Galil, how we have really the jumping off of the deep end and going into all kinds of crazy suggestions about different inscriptions on rocks and things like that, that no one, at least that I know of, takes very seriously. And so uh, this is our first story. Um, I'm not putting it in the top 10 list, not only because it wasn't found in 2023, you see what I did there, sidestepping it, Uh, but it also... You know, it, it remains to be seen what, if any, its significance might be. So this is very much in the realm of discussion in the archaeological community today. But to your point, Chris, I, w- I will just add one last thing um, that, yeah, when, when the public comes across these sensational stories that are presented and there hasn't been a proper vetting, now the academic community has to, in some regards, do, should we say, damage control and say, you know, Okay, well, let's weigh the evidence as it comes out, but chances are this is not what this initial claim was. And yet the general public is running wild with this about this. And all of a sudden, then the more reserved or, you know, the, the academics who are uh, being more critical with the evidence are painted, I think, in a, unfairly in a negative light that why, why are you guys hating on this? Well, we're not. It's just that the evidence doesn't stand up to scrutiny. And so, um, you know, let's see what other evidence there might be. Let's present it. But yes, go through the proper channels first before we present it to everyone, because then it creates challenges within the academic world that have bigger repercussions, as you mentioned. Yeah, I I completely agree. And, And one of the things that I think both of us on this podcast, especially with things like this, when they come up, is that we're really just trying to be fair, you know, to, to the evidence, fair to friendships and colleagues and you know, all the things that we, um, that we think and, and say, but you're, you're absolutely right that there, there's no reason to demonize on, on this front. And I think to, on the other side, you can have uh, an approach that is very demeaning of even these types of suggestions. Sometimes, sometimes there are amazing discoveries, (laughs) amazing discoveries that we've never seen before. And and we just saw last time the discovery in entirely new language, the language of Kalashma. Um, And we have no idea where they will be found. It remains to be seen, and really the the jury's still out. 
And the burden of proof is on the authors who published this paper and made this public to really produce the evidence to say, first of all, uh, back up if there's writing at all on it, and two, then to show if there's anything that supports their claims that were made in their article. So uh, anyway, I just completely agree with your point. Let's move on to our next topic. And this is going to be a couple more honorable mentions, you might say, before we get into our top 10 list. I wanted to mention a very interesting study that's being conducted. I didn't include it in the list of the top 10 because actually they didn't discover anything, (laughs) but I want you to be made aware of it. And I also want to just give a shout out to both the uh, Times of Israel and the Haaretz wings of the, for, for archaeology that I just think do a fantastic job covering these stories. Uh, in fact, I uh, even had one of my own articles published, uh, covered by Haaretz on the Milo this year, uh, and I think they just do a really good job trying to weigh the different types of evidence uh, and, and more so just staying on the pulse of it. These aren't stories that just sit there for a long period of time. They they tend to be published right away, especially when it comes to Jerusalem. In fact, when I was when we were looking at this list, you could almost make a top ten list just in Jerusalem. Uh, so this didn't quite make my cut uh, or our cut, but it's an important one nevertheless. So the name of the story is Israeli archaeologist enlist cosmic rays to unveil underground secrets of Jerusalem. That's a title. That is a, a, a real title. I'm not at all going to pretend to know how this exactly works. Uh, in fact, um, I'm not even sure I know how to pronounce the particular type of uh, rain. I think it's muon, maybe muon, muon, that th- that descends from from space and enters these different cavities uh, in in ancient times. And so the idea is, is they put these sensors in different parts underground of uh, the city of David and the area of the Ophel, potentially to find more cavities and underground tunnels within this area. Now, we do know, historically speaking, that the city of David and, of course, the Temple Mount has lots of different caverns. The first person to really tell us that was Charles Warren. Uh, the Temple Mount itself has dozens of cavities, including a huge cistern called the the Sea that sits just to the north of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. But scholars believe that there's probably many more that have, have yet to be discovered. Uh, a couple of years ago, maybe longer than that now, maybe a decade ago, uh, Eli Shukrun found a very large Iron Age cistern that was very near the area of, of Robinson's Arch that had not been known about even in the Second Temple period. And so it, it's very possible that there are more of these. And so potentially uh, this could be an incredible, lead to an incredible discovery related to Jerusalem's history. This is the muons and looking for tunnels that had not been discovered before. If only Charles Warren had this in his tool bag, think of what he could have discovered. <laughs> the The next honorable slash dishonorable slash whatever you think about it story is the excavations of the Pool of Siloam. And this is actually, I think, a a great example of 
what happens when politics as well as archaeology as well as Jerusalem all meet. It was announced back in April of this year uh, that, or even a little bit earlier, that the area of the Pool of Siloam was going to be excavated. Now, I was a student in Israel, an undergrad student in 2005, when they first accidentally found the first steps of the Pool of Siloam. And here we're talking about the Herodian Pool, which was built in the first century, either BC or AD. Uh, They found it accidentally and then excavated up to, I think, three or four steps. And they excavated other parts of it on on the west side, and showed that they had two parts of this pool, but anyone who's visited the city of David and gone down to the Pool of Siloam might remember standing on those steps and looking at a huge orchard. Well, at the end of last year and the beginning of this year, the decision was made, and it's a complicated decision, but essentially there was a 20-year-long or more court case that was finally decided where the sale of that land was approved and it allowed for the owner, the new owner, according to the Israeli court system, to allow for the raising of the orchard that had been on the land in order to excavate the pool. The assumption was that what they would find is a massive pool. In fact, if you've seen depictions of it, it's it's a very large pool that was stone-lined with ashlars and uh, in keeping with the two sides of the pool that they excavated. So excavations have have been ongoing, uh, first with just simply the removal of the soil and then continuing with new excavations. I don't comment too much on it because it hasn't really been announced other than here and there stories coming up and travelers taking pictures because it's still part of the city of David. Uh, But it does seem that the pool the way it was projected to look like, looks nothing like that. Uh, It seems that there's only, at this point, two sides of the pool. And I think very interestingly, there's architecture within the pool. Whether that's later or contemporary uh, remains to be seen. And I, for one, at least from an archaeological perspective, look anxiously to see what they'll find, not so much for only the early Roman period, you know, the high point of Jerusalem's history, but for what they might find from the Hellenistic, and especially the Persian, when we have the stories of Nehemiah. In fact, it's in Nehemiah that we read of the Pool of Shelach, uh, the, the, the name of the pool before it was the Pool of Siloam, which is the uh, Hellenized name. And potentially, we could even find the 8th century version of this pool which goes back to the days of Hezekiah when he dug the pool, as it's mentioned in uh, Kings and Isaiah. The last thing I'd say about it is, uh, I think one of the fascinating things is the way it's covered in different news sources. Haaretz, who I mentioned as having usually very, very good archaeological discussions, covers it in a very left-leaning way. Uh, And we can read on uh, Fox News the Pool of Siloam becomes the place that <laughs> is the place with a sacred religious site where Jesus healed the blind man. It's new discoveries. So you have a very different focus. Of course, the Pool of Siloam was the place where Jesus did heal the blind man, according to John 9. Uh, but the focus on how exactly you talk about in the public archaeological discoveries, if we're looking at, once again at the Ebal object, uh, curse tablet, whatever you want to call it, or the Pool of Siloam, 
really depends on who's receiving that news and how it's being presented to them by your flavor of news source. Yeah, no, I think that's such a great point, Chris, that there's always going to be a spin. And um, our job is to try and get behind that and at least particularly for this podcast, present the different opinions and or the evidence as as best we can, but as unbiased as possible, which you know is always challenging because we all have biases. Yeah, and, and I would even say, you know, in some ways, the more things change, the more they, they stay the same. This area was excavated, not, not the pool itself, but I mean, even from the earliest days of archaeology, Charles Warren going down to the, the so-called Pool of Siloam, which was next to the, the, Byzantine, uh, the Byzantine Church, which you exit if you go through Hezekiah's Tunnels today. And we, we talked a, a couple of years ago in that great book, um, I think it's called Beneath Jerusalem with uh, Lawler, Andrew Lawler, about some of those politics with the Ottomans, the locals living there, Charles Warren. Uh, and so it's, it's interesting to see that this really small area uh, still remains such a hotbed of political, um, of dynamic tension, you might say. Okay, um, our next honorable mention, we are going to get to our, our stories, <laughs> stories here in a minute. Uh, our next honorable mention kind of sets the stage. In fact, these next two set the stage for what is my favorite Old Testament Hebrew Bible discovery of the year, uh, which we'll talk about in just a minute. It came out in uh, an article written by Nadav Naaman. The name of the article is In Light of the Glyptic Cuneiform Material Unearthed in the Ophel, basically saying that the most ancient part of Jerusalem is the Temple Mount. And so that was picked up on in uh, different journals, including Haaretz, uh, Ariel David, uh, who, as I mentioned earlier, as, a, as someone who covers a lot of these stories, he presents Nadav's case that King David's Jerusalem wasn't where we thought, New Study argues. And what Nadav Naaman argues is because we have the small fragment of a cuneiform tablet uh, that was uncovered now 15 years ago by Elat Mazar and other pieces, that we can now posit that ancient Jerusalem of the Middle Bronze Age, the Late Bronze Age, the Early Iron Age, was not around the Gihon Spring. Uh, where it's almost always thought to have been, but instead we should locate it underneath the Temple Mount. Now, Nadav Naaman's argument is not technically new. This suggestion was made uh, actually even further back, even before it was popularized, but it was popularized in the last decade or so by Israel Finkelstein and, and others uh, suggesting the so-called mound-on-the-mount theory. In other words, as I said, the reason why we don't find any significant or large significant Canaanite or early Judahite parts of Jerusalem in the city of David, in the southeastern hill, is because they didn't live there. They lived primarily on the Temple Mount. And the reason why we can't find it there is, well, thanks to Herod the Great. Uh, who built this massive podium over the site. This uh, theory has several people who, who who like the idea, but it's become somewhat popular among uh, among low chronology fans, as well as others in, in, in Tel Aviv, uh, Tel Aviv University, whereas it's been heavily criticized by others, particularly 
those who excavate in the city of David, which would include uh, Yuval Gadot and Joziel and Iftak Shalev. Uh, and so I, I don't want to quite get to that discovery yet, but I, I think that the publication of this was sort of like when you throw up a volleyball uh, to to begin to serve it, uh, and then it like just kind of weak sauce makes it over the net, and you just have this big, strong person ready just to spike it. Uh, because there was a discovery that occurred over this last year, but just published in October and then popularized in this last month that I think completely disproves this suggestion that the most ancient part of Jerusalem was located on the Temple Mount. Yeah, I think that the issue for for some is what kind of expectations do you have? And why, why would we want to question where the earliest city of of Jerusalem is and why why move it from the established location on the city of David Ridge and posit that it's underneath the Temple Mount. And I think part of it comes with what scholars might be, you know, the scholars that propose that are expecting to find in their conceived notion of what Jerusalem as some sort of um, large city or, or type of settlement should be. And I think that the, these um, assumptions need to be evaluated as part of the the overall interpretation, because we always bring different assumptions to what we're doing. And I think in this instance, yeah, the, the evidence still is quite strong. I would say no reason to change what we already know and, and posit that the earliest settlement was on the temple platform or temple mount instead of where we already know it is. Yeah, I, I completely agree without, again, <laughs> giving away the, the spike ball. Um, to me, even before this new evidence, it's unassailable that the city of David is the place of the earliest part of Jerusalem for one basic reason. It's the location where you have a perennial spring. And, and in fact, if we were to go into the history of research of Jerusalem— one of the reasons why the city of David was lost and not understood, like I always tell people that the oldest part of Jerusalem, the oldest city is not in the old city. The reason for that and why the city of David is outside of the old city has to do with two factors. One is Hezekiah, who dug his tunnel um, and created a pool, which we just talked about, the, the pool of Salom, the pool of Sh- uh, Shaloach or Shelech, and that became the, the main water source for at least that part of the city in the 8th century, which shifted the focus from the area of the Gihon Spring on its eastern side, which if you've heard me talk in other discussions, I believe is the the area of the Milo. The other big factor, even more important than that, is in the days of of already in the Hasmoneans, but certainly in the days of, of Herod the Great, a massive aqueduct tapped into the so-called Solomon's Pools just to the south of Bethlehem, some of the most perennial and important uh, springs there, and there's reservoirs there that brought the majority of the water to the western hill, which had actually an aqueduct that spanned the upper uh, Hinnom Valley and came into Herod's palace and eventually all the way to the Temple Mount. And, And so that water supply that even, I think in the letter of Aristeus, he calls it like a spring coming up from the, the temple, changed the way people thought about the city. And so the city of David slowly becomes this cast off. And that's actually how we we get to traditional ideas of 
David's Tower or Citadel, or even the Milo being connected with the Pool of Mamilla, which just simply means the water of Milo, uh, and probably also the Upper Hinnom Valley being misidentified with the Gihon, because they lost the place, so they re-identify it traditionally with places that seem like they matched ancient Jerusalem. So in some ways, I think the Mount on the Mount theory is really a reversal of everything that Charles Warren and and his successors, especially uh, Raymond Veal, discovered in the early part of, of the 20th century to really establish Jerusalem's character and topography. And so anyway, I, I think it's already extremely problematic, but this new discovery uh, points to it hopefully going the way of the dodo. Now, back in August, so this is not that long ago, um, we had an announcement of strange tunnels or channels near the Temple Mount. Uh, this was announced in Haaretz and other and other places, and it was in the excavations of the Givati parking lot, which is the western side of the city of David. This is in the the so-called uh, Tyropean or Central Valley. Massive excavations there over the last decade or so. And they got, they finally hit bedrock in some areas. And they began finding these, these channels that they didn't really understand. And the article, the popular article was published like, well, we don't really know what this is. What do you think it is? And everybody's like, I don't know. What, what could that be? Could it be, you know, a place for, for uh, a fuller to tread uh, on some clothes? Could it, could it be for storage? Uh, is it a water slide? Uh, all these, uh, I don't know if anybody suggested that, but it does kind of look like a water slide. Uh, and, and so uh, it, it turns out that it is something much more uh, significant than that. Uh, because as they continued excavating, uh, word just was announced in, again, in, in Tel Aviv, uh, the Tel Aviv Journal in October and publicized more broadly in uh, the Biblical Archaeology Society, which, which also covers these types of news in, in Haaretz, that there is a massive moat that was dug at some point uh, before the Hellenistic period, and we'll talk about it way before the Hellenistic period, but we uh, don't know exactly when it was dug, that bisected the eastern hill. Now, the eastern hill of Jerusalem is comprises two, you might call them summits, or two pieces. On the north part is the area that we call Mount Moriah, or the Temple Mount, or associate it with Mount Zion. The eastern part is sometimes called the Southeastern Ridge, or it's called the City of David. Yes, it's confusing. Yes, it's complicated. To make it even more complicated, it was all lost, as I said before, and Mount Zion became the Western Hill, which is across the Central Valley. But for what we know now, there's two hills in Jerusalem, of ancient Jerusalem, a Western Hill, an Eastern Hill. The Western Hill was associated by tradition with Zion, but it was actually the eastern hill that was ancient Zion, and the northern part is where the Temple Mount is, built by Solomon, chosen by David, the threshing floor of Arubna the Jebusite, and at least according to the biblical tradition, is where the city expanded northward. Uh, and so the biblical tradition, as well as academic suggestion, has been 
that Jebus, the city of David, when David conquered the city and the Canaanite city that preceded it was on this southeastern section around the Gihon Spring. And so as the archaeologists continued to excavate in Givati, they, find, they found these channels, but then they began to notice that they continue to go further and further and further down. So much so that, and, and they were able to check other uh, records of past excavations in the vicinity, where they're now positing that there is a very wide and very deep moat that was carved that separates the area of the Temple Mount, the northern part of the eastern hill, from the southeastern part, the area of the city of David. They've suggested that this moat was purposefully and intentionally done as a defensive moat to protect the southeastern part of the city of David. And they suggest that the time period in which it was, was, was made was at the very uh, latest in the 9th century BC. That would be the late Iron 2A. But if you read between the lines in the discussion of the article in Tel Aviv, it's clear that they're suggesting it could actually be quite a bit earlier than that. So there's really the possibility that this moat was either carved in the Iron One, uh, which would be maybe the 12th, 11th century, uh, which is probably the same time period as the construction of the uh, so-called large stone structure and step structure, the initial construction anyway, that we have uh, in the area of Area G. And, or it could have been uh, carved even in the Middle Bronze Age, which is the same time period when the um, when the, the Spring Tower was likely constructed in connection with Canaanite Jerusalem. The jury's still out, we don't know. And unfortunately, different tests did not reveal its exact date of construction. But we but they they did make the claim, and I think it makes good sense, that it is early Iron Age. And I think if we just use historical logic, it's probably either very early Iron Age or or even Canaanite. Now, why does that totally demolish the idea of a uh, mound on the mount theory? Well, if you want to hear the other side, I'd suggest you read the article in Haaretz because Israel Finkelstein makes uh, several suggestions about it. But I think it totally destroys the argument because now we've we've closed the loop. Jerusalem's topographic features mean that it's almost impossible to conquer Jerusalem from the south, where we have the confluence of the Kidron Valley, the Hinnom Valley, and the Central Valley. It's very difficult to conquer it from the west, where we have the deep Central Valley, and which left, so we have west, south, east, uh, covered up by these valleys, which always has meant that the north is the most vulnerable side. Every, every destruction that we know of where we can actually figure out where uh, Jerusalem was conquered has come from the north, whether we're talking about Titus or Yigal Yadin uh, in 1967, coming through uh, Lionsgate. So the north is always a vulnerable point for attack. And so now we can see that there was actually an artificial moat that was carved along the northern part of the city. More than that, this ties in 
with another archaeological uh, detail, not only in terms of past excavations by Kenyon and others that found this feature before, but we also know probably in the Iron Age that the area north of the old city had this type of feature as well. Uh, we see evidence of quarrying and perhaps the creation of an artificial moat. It's not for sure, for sure that it was in the first temple period, but it was certainly the case in the second temple period that there was a moat protecting the northern wall. In fact, if you ever visit the Rockefeller Museum and you go around the city on its north east side, you dip down and you see rocky cliffs on both sides. Well, that's an ancient moat to create a type of artificial valley separating the city on its most vulnerable side from an attacker. And so what we probably have here, and maybe you hear it in my voice, this is my favorite discovery of the whole uh, Iron Age uh, period, is evidence of this, which, which gives us a lot of information about how we're to understand Jerusalem in its earliest days and, and how it would have looked. Yeah, I agree, Chris. I think this is also my favorite discovery. And I think on the one hand, it it makes a lot of sense then as we try to piece together the ancient topography, but also with the archaeological remains, and we think about the large stone structure and the step stone structure, why they are where they are, well, this moat would seem to run just to the north of that. And so, granted, it'll be interesting to see what what else comes out of this, but it it, it might be that this you know stepstone structure is the northeastern corner kind of part of a, a larger operation to protect the settlement from the north and it's tied into this mode as well it also raises a really interesting question too if we think about the biblical description of david's taking of jerusalem in second samuel 5 the mention of the tsinor and what is this and it's always been associated with water of some sort and you know oh is it the the shaft in the water system is it channel two is it this that or the other it could open the door for further discussions as well about um, a, a subsequent or a, you know, an attack from the north, even in David's day, um, that could be taking place. Yeah, I think I think those are good points. And I would say, now we have to ask a lot of other questions about this. Like, how, okay, because it's not just that we get to the earliest days of Jerusalem. And, and I agree, I, I thought immediately of, of, you know, Joab and the Sinor, and, you know, that could also be, the area of the Gihon Springs still, we, we, don't, we don't really know. But we do know that this moat was in use all the way through the period of the Hebrew Bible. It's only closed up during the days of the Hellenistic period, which might also lead into another important discussion, the question of where we have this massive fort, the Acre, that is mentioned in Josephus and mentioned in uh, the book of Maccabees. But now we have the question of uh, when Solomon expands the city to the north, builds the temple, builds the palace, how do you get across this thing? <laughs> uh, do, you, do you walk, you know, the plank across? <laughs> and one of the things I'm really excited to, to see more of is we do have Iron Age fortifications just across the city of David. Uh, in fact, you have to literally cross the road to, to, to go there, including a gate. Was this gate an internal gate? that connected you to the city of David? Was it external to, to a, have someone come up from the city from the east? Uh, I think all of these types of discussions, and by the way, the gate dates to, at least according to the archaeologists, to the excavators, to the time of, of, of Solomon. Uh, all these questions have to come up now with uh, this new discovery. I, I'm sure we're going to have 
a lot more discussion of this in days to come. Well, let's move on to our next big discovery. This is the true purple uncovered in Tel Shikmona. Again, this was published in an article by the excavators of Tel Shikmona, uh, and it was then presented in various journals, including Haaretz. Tel Shikmona is a really lovely site in my favorite big city in Israel, which is the city of Haifa. The excavators found, among other things in this in this really small site, evidence of the true purple, not just in terms of the finds themselves, but the production of this. This has wide-ranging implications because we know that that purple was a very important, very significant, and very wealthy item. And here we can see that already in the ninth century, perhaps during the days of Ahab, where we read about in the Bible, a connection between the Phoenicians and the Israelites, that this was a site where this type of production was, was happening. And so it gives us all kinds of insights into the types of clothing you would wear, the types of curtains that could have been dyed along this way, as well as if we, if we look a bit longer and seeing how this type of purple cloth ends up in places like Timna in the south from a slightly earlier period. And so this is a very important discovery um, that I think well illustrates uh, something we already know, but gives us more insight into this process. Our next discovery is actually extremely important. It's not my favorite. I mean, who, who, who doesn't love a, a moat? But this one has the potential to really be a, a, an enormous game changer. I'm talking about the recovery of DNA from a tomb at or near Kiryat Yerim. Kiryat Yerim is a city west of uh, Jerusalem, uh, between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, going down Highway 1. In the biblical era, it was an important location uh, on the border between Benjamin and, and Judah. Uh, it was excavated a few years ago by Israel Finkelstein and some of his colleagues. And in the process of those excavations, they suggested a variety of things that we won't mention, but it was found out that there were some illicit excavations of a nearby tomb. And the tomb turns out to be dated to the latter part of the Iron Age II, from the 8th to the early 6th century, and skeletal remains were found. And because they were able to, to excavate it, they recovered the skeletal remains and then subjected them to DNA testing. And for the very first time, we have uh, ancient Judahite DNA recovered. Now, this is extremely significant for a number of people. I mean, if you ever ask the question, where, where do the Jewish people come from? Well, Jewish is related to Judean, which is related to Judah, the, the kingdom of Judah. And there's always been the suggestion that the Judahites emerged from the local Canaanite tribes that were there already. And so this could potentially be uh, proof, one way or the other, what is the exact DNA relationship between the Canaanites who lived in the land before Israel and Judah arrived, and whoever might have come in there in the meantime. On the other hand, one of the most important things about 
when we think about DNA is not only what it tells us about ancestry, but what it also tells us about how uh, DNA can function over time. This, and it hasn't been published yet, it I think has been held up because of the, the conflict in, in Gaza, but one of the things that is uh, significant about it is not only its own dis- uh, recovery, which is extremely significant, but that we now have had several other ones that preceded it. The first of these was the recovery of pig bones going back about a decade now, which showed that the pigs that are currently alive and well in Israel today, and actually much much of the, the Levant, are not the local population, but instead were brought to Israel at some point, probably during the Philistine migration, so much so that their DNA overtook the local DNA of the species of, of pig that, that was there. Then we had uh, in Lebanon, the sequencing of, or I should say the recovery of DNA, showing the close relationship between places like Tyre and Sidon, where the skeletal remains were found, and the current population of Lebanon today, which means the Lebanese, many of the Lebanese that live in Lebanon today, are the genetic ancestors, at least according to this DNA evidence, of the Canaanites or people that lived in Lebanon during the Bronze Age. Now, to bring this full circle, a couple of years ago, we had the recovery of a Philistine cemetery at Ashkelon, which I mentioned earlier with, with Dan Master, and it showed even something more interesting, which is they didn't just find the DNA of one skeleton or two skeletons, but they found, I think it was 30 or plus skeletons that they were able to get DNA from, from different periods. And so what it showed is that in the 12th century, and what they were able to do is have a middle bronze, late bronze skeleton, which was Canaanite. Then they had a Iron Age one skeleton, which showed elements that were from uh, from Europe, specifically according to Dan Master from the island of Crete, which is nice because that matches with what Amos tells us that have I not brought the Philistines from Kaftor? But over time, over time into the 11th, 10th, 9th, 8th centuries, the DNA reverted back to the Canaanites. In other words, we know there were still Philistines. They called themselves Philistines. But the DNA, when we look at it from the time period of, of the main interaction between the Israelites and the Philistines in the latter part of the Iron One and into the Iron Age Two, the DNA showed that they were of the local variety. And so it's not as always straightforward as saying that the DNA will show you everything. Uh, so that's a, a particularly interesting thing. If we, we can't really comment on what this DNA evidence will show, uh, but I think it's important to to see it against the backdrop of what has been published and suggested, especially with the Philistine evidence. And I know there's debate as to what that might mean, um, but it's a very interesting and noteworthy discovery with, I think, a huge potential to think about ethnicity, background, descent, and what it means to be an ancient Judahite, which has everything to say about what it means to be potentially uh, a Jew until a Jew until today. So a, a very important discovery. Yeah. And hopefully this will just be the first of such things. And 
you know, the challenge is, unfortunately, so many tombs are, have been looted and we just don't have the remains there by which to do such analyses. So that's what makes this one so exciting. And uh, just hopefully future finds will add to our corpus of knowledge. Yeah, completely agree. Moving to our last Iron Age discovery, we have the discovery of not, again, any particular thing, but an analysis of things that are found all the time. People ask me, you know, what, what do you find? What's the greatest find? Uh, and I always try to use it as an opportunity to say, well, you know, it's, you want to find the context. You want to find the building. You know, I could find an inscription, but unless I find it in the building with all of this stuff, it doesn't really tell me much. Pottery, of course, is nice, and we find it all the time. Probably in the list right after that of the most common finds and even less interesting in some ways, is broken mud brick. In fact, most of the tell usually is just deteriorated mud brick. That's what a tell comes from, is the debris of this mud brick falling apart, as well as you know stones and other things. Now, a couple of years ago, uh, we have Yoav Vaknin, of, um, he just has his PhD from Hebrew University, developing this idea of archaeopaleomagnetism which is essentially that you can figure out what the exact magnetic reading was, uh, the electromagnetic um, reading, by looking at burnt objects, whether that is pottery that's been initially burnt, or if it's especially been mud brick that has been destroyed in a campaign. Now, that will not give you a date. Like, you can't just go through this process and say, okay, this mud brick dates to Shishak. This mud brick dates to Titus. Doesn't doesn't work that way. But what it can tell you is, if you go through this um, paleomagnetic process, you can figure out the same reading from one destruction to the next. And so, one of the things that happened over this last year was they used archaeomagnetism to date a number of different campaigns that were contemporary with one another at particular sites. So it meant that sites that were in question, and, and not just sites, but particular destruction layers at sites like Beit Shan and Rehov and other places that people were saying, well, this maybe dates to Hazael destruction around 830, or maybe this dates to Shishak's destruction around 930. And there's debate because the pottery doesn't really tell you they were actually able to say, no, this has to date to the same time period because it shows uh, it, sh it shows the same magnetic reading according to this method. And so this has the, the great potential of not only continuing to give us a, a way of dating contemporary destructions, particularly those that we know were widespread events like Shishak or Hazael or Tiglath-Pileser III or Sennacherib or Nebuchadnezzar, and really actually all the way down until the present because it's the same idea. Um, but it also gives us the ability to really tap into this, uh, this bigger history uh, and chronology. So this is one of those things that we've known about as being in our chronological toolkit, but it's great to see it used in such an important way. Yeah, and I think this is just yet another tool in our kind of scientific belt to help us 
continue to refine our chronologies and come to greater understanding of of how the archaeology connects with the historical uh, kind of record, shall we say? Absolutely. And so I, I would, as we bring this this one to a close, last episode we looked at the Bronze Age background. We looked at several stories. In this episode, which is a bit longer, we've looked at the major Iron Age stories as they relate to the primarily the the First Temple period. A number of things that relate to uh, Jerusalem, especially the my favorite one, the recovery of this moat and the discovery of how significant this is to how we understand Jerusalem. But we've seen that particularly in the area of, of Israel, um, and especially Jerusalem, there's been a number of very significant discoveries. And if history uh, is any clue, I suggest that when we are back here in 2024, uh, there will be even more important discoveries to, to talk about related to Jerusalem. Uh, so we've covered our, at least my favorite period, the Iron Age. Uh, in our next, in our next uh, episode, we're going to dive into the Second Temple period, where there are a number of fantastic and far-flung uh, discoveries over the course of this last year. Um, but until then, I'll let you say it, Kyle. What, what are they supposed to be doing? Keep on digging. You've been listening to On Script's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, Please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging. <laughs>